Hey, Holly here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to share some information with you about some workshops that we're running. Here at Ashore Product Science, we love to teach workshops, both public workshops, private workshops at companies, and even an online workshop for people who can't come to see us in person. If you're interested in learning how to identify the right products and features to build and how to develop the support to do so with the product science method, come and join us. You can learn more at ashoreproductscience.com workshops. Hi, and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. I'm so happy this week on the Product Science Podcast to talk with John Cutler. Uh, John is currently, I believe your title is Product Evangelist. That's, um, that's the best we've come up with mm-hmm. so far, but yeah. Yeah, um, at Amplitude. And um, he's been uh, writing and talking and thinking and coaching on product um, for quite some time. So super excited to have him. John, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm I'm excited and you've been kicking butt to no. these, these podcasts. Like, Thank you. N- no effort that I have has started with, with the, so well-formed. So mm. you, you knocked out that season. And so I'm, I'm in awe. Oh, thanks. I, uh, you know, what's really fun as a, as a product management coach, when someone tells you you're doing something really well and you get to tell them that's because I applied my product management skills. <laughs> Score. <laughs> it's the best. It. <laughs> uh, but, um, so tell us, uh, for anybody who, um, who doesn't know, um, a bit about you, why don't we start with what you're doing these days and then we'll go back to, you know, how you got there. Sure. So, I currently work at a company called Amplitude. Amplitude uh, makes products that help people build better products. So our product is most known now for analytics and specifically product-oriented analytics. So if you think about uh, tools that you use to look at data, there's tons of tools and they, they target different parts of the customer journey. They target different types of questions. They often specialize in in getting different sources of data that you can look at. So they all have different specializations. But Amplitude is laser focused on behavioral analytics, things that can help product managers and product development teams experiment and figure out the the formula for lifetime value. So how, how can you get people to really get value out of your product or you know, offer the value to them. You don't wanna get people to do anything. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they're getting value out of the product, but not just do that to hit a quarter goal or to you know, drop people in through the top of the funnel. There's all tool, there's analytics tools for that. If you wanna know how many people are dropping through the top of the funnel to get to your landing page, there's pretty good tools for that. Amplitude does some of that, but we're really focused on, on those long evolving relationships that customers have with products and then how to tweak things to improve lifetime value. So that's Amplitude. My role is product evangelist. That's the best we've come up right now. There's different types of product evangelists. Some evangelize products all day. I, I think Amplitude sells itself and I don't really need to talk about Amplitude. What I actually focus on are, are the broader environments 
that teams operate in and how that might impact their ability to make use of a product like Amplitude. And so what we notice that when, when we're out there talking to prospects and the broader product community is that a great example is if you're locking down a roadmap a year in advance of specific features, no, no amount of data that you have or <laughs> is going to make a difference. You've already committed to doing that thing. You haven't committed towards a, an outcome or you haven't taken a deeper look at what you're doing. So you could have an amazing analytics solution or what we call product intelligence solution, but you'd be stuck because you know the structure within your company isn't aligned around working in the way that we imagine people working with our product. So that's what I focus on mostly. We have a lot of passionate people about our product, so I don't really need to evangelize the product, but especially as we, we move into the enterprise and especially as we get these bigger and bigger customers, it becomes increasingly important to try to pick away at some of the other blockers uh, to be more impact driven. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a very, um, a very forward thinking approach uh, for the business to invest in that. Hopefully. These are all bets. <laughs> Who knows? You know, like you gotta, you, you, there's, there's no silver bullet with these things. You're always placing these bets. And, and as I get, I'm on a marketing team and there's so many parallels there with, with the types mm -hmm. of bets that you make and, and having to understand things. And, and, and I tend to think too, that if you take a couple steps back, customer success, marketing, sales, if the company is the product, then all of these different departments are also products or part of this experience. I think we, we overburden the word product a lot and sometimes beat people up with the word product. Like you'll see these companies and if you can call what you're doing a product, oh, then you're, you know, CapEx and people love you and you're working on feature, you know, customer facing work. And if you can't call what you're doing a product, then you're in the, the dark dungeons of the company. But, you know, for lack of a better word, if the whole company is a product, then all of these departments are different parts of the experience and, and, and can influence the experience and lifetime value. So I'm excited to work on a marketing team. It was a little disconcerting at first, but, you know, I do my thing. Yeah. Tell us more about how you got to doing that thing. Man, it has been a crazy road. <laughs> I, I, I will tell a, a couple little tidbits of stories of things that I've done, but I, I was in New York for about 18 years, very distracted, dropped out of school twice. Um, I had a side business doing the assignments for NYU MBA students. So they were wow. smart enough to hire people to do their homework and then also facilitate activities. So I remember being in, in, um, in near Union Square um, or St. Mark's Place or something. And, and the team met me at the Starbucks there. And I was facilitating this group of MBA students. And I was, I don't know, 19 or something. And, and they were smart enough to pay someone to come in and help them and do it. And that was, so I, I would do things like that. And then I got really, really into music again, did a lot of touring and music. So, so my 20s were a blur of getting very distracted by things. And I did have some fun gigs. I worked at uh, Viacom, Nickelodeon. I would produce their big upfront presentations, their annual ad upfronts. And that was fun. So you got, got used to dealing with the CEO of the company and designers and, and people creating stuff. And that was good. I worked in the uh, PowerPoint sweatshops that they had in Manhattan at the time. Like you would, you know, at Morgan Stanley or whatever, at 24 hours a day, there's a room of 150 people doing PowerPoint and Excel and Word, and you were measured by how 
many keystrokes you used and the number of errors. And you could imagine some of these roadshow decks for investment banks have like two point text on charts. Uh, or the other funny one is I remember one night where it was a rush job and we, we they, they have these slides that have like 600 logos on them, ecosystem type slides. And someone said, well, we could go and find them or we could just send this to India. And so that night, I think we ran up like, you know, thousands of dollar bill or something. They were recreating logos, like 600 logos that the amount of money spent to just for optics was, was at an all time high. So that was actually a real learning experience. You're like in the belly of the beast during the, the dot-com boom, the first dot-com boom and the dot-com bust. And they would always rename the companies after animals because they couldn't expose the names of the company, but it would be something like, you know, fish with a you know, net capitalization of hundreds of millions of dollars will buy Barracuda and like any, any reasonable person who knew anything about the landscape of business would be like, oh yeah, they're talking about Yahoo. You know, you, you would know in two seconds. So you actually, you, you know, I spent years just playing music and trying my own little businesses and then reading massive roadshow documents and investment banks over time. So that kind of teaches you some things too. Anyway, this is all in the mess of my 20s music. Well, oh, I just got to say that is one of, that is just a random <laughs> That is like a drunkard's walk through like creativity and business and there design and I, entrepreneurship. In, it, it was, um, <laughs> we all go at our own pace for doing these things. I found that I really, I really wanted to create things and have, yeah. I, I had this bartending, I made a bartending CD-ROM game called Last Call. And Last Call was published by Simon & Schuster, but they didn't think ahead of time to distribution. So Kmart wouldn't sell it because there was like lewd dialogue. You, you know, you're like in the bar and you have to serve these people, but at the end you get to, you know, this bacchanalia that, you know, Bacchus is there and there's, there's all this stuff. And it's crazy things like Tina Fey using a, a pseudonym to do non-union work was sitting there doing voiceovers for us and Adam Felber from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And and like just this fun community of people in New York making this CD-ROM game. And it was a complete flop because there was liquor and bad language in it. And so, you know, Walmart and Kmart wouldn't carry it. But I did get the rights to sell it online. And, and Simon Schuess was like, well, what is this person going to do with this website? Like, you're going to sell stuff over the web? And I thought, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the rights to buy my own product and then at a real discount and then sell it. So I actually made a decent amount of money selling my own game direct. Um, to people all around the world. And I always say the joke that like 15 years later, this bar owner from Germany said, you know, I'm not going to do accents going terrible, but he's basically saying, I have a copy, I have a Win95 machine in the back office that I have kept pristine with nothing downloaded on it so that I can run last call to teach bartenders. And like, and do these things. So that, that, Anyway, so I got involved in these funny things and this one real estate startup. And then, of course, the market collapsed. And it was all sort of a mess, the touring, the, the music and all those things. And so then as I moved into my 30s, I kind of got my act together and did more consulting, did a number of product management things in ad tech and uh, e-commerce and more consulting, UX research, product management, and then moved into there. I, I did, oh, I forgot one of the other jobs, I rode a bicycle taxi. 
those New York um, rickshaws? Yes, yeah. So the funny thing about the rickshaws is at that time, this is, this, uh, there's a lesson in product here because we, we would always be downtown and it'd be on a good night, you make $80. And then Pierre comes in one day and says, I've, I've been in Midtown and I've seen the light. Like if you go to Midtown, you can make $120 because of the theaters. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, well, that's really far. Like, are we going to go all the way up to Midtown? You know, what are you going to do? And Pierre keeps coming back and making like $120. And he said, oh, this is $100. This is a lot. And then another person comes in and says, I, I've been doing what Pierre has been doing, but I have a minimum price of $40. I don't take a ride for less than $40 in Midtown. And I'm making $200. Then everyone's adapting like, oh, okay, you've got to use minimum pricing. You've got to do these things. And then before you know it, like years later, you know, a good night working in Midtown in Times Square, it's three or 400 bucks cash, which is pretty decent to ride your bike around all day. Um, and then you'd always get these funny things like this one time these investment bankers, the six guys jump on and then they say, you, you can't take six people, can you? And you, it's a bicycle, so you can move a bicycle. And then I said, well, um, Yes, I think I can do it. Will you, will you each pay me $10 per block? That's, that's the bet. And they all said, yeah, 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 whatever. So that's $60 a block. And then we went from Union uh, Square all the way up to Grand Central. So that's 14 blocks, 42. You know, you do the math, $10, $60 per block. So that was like, that was wow. crazy. And they yeah. paid, of course. So yeah. that was the funniest part. Anyway, these are stories about... To, to anyone listening who has had a, a messed up background that you feel embarrassed to tell the world about, I'm just unleashing right now. Like, just let the freak flag fly. Yeah. Everyone gets, everyone gets into product at their own time. You can drop I, out of school. You can do whatever. <laughs> and like, you, you, you each, you, you get into this at your own time and find your groove at your own time. I, I, uh, I can hear that sort of feeling about it in you, but I also think like, I don't know about you, but I know plenty of people who've let their, let their freak flag fly in their 20s, and it didn't involve any MBAs or, like, making video games with Tina Fey. <laughs> like, how did you do that? That sounds like a really stellar version of, like, that winding path. Yeah, I mean, but but I'm not talking about all the years I was completely bored too. I mean, there's, there's selection <laughs> bias, right? Like, there's probably okay. a whole year that I was like, Oh, I'm gonna make this album in my basement and, you know, go to the bank and stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I said that, if I was like, yeah, I spent two years like going to the bank every night and trying to make an album in my basement, you'd be like, <laughs> oh, I have a friend Jack like that. So, you know, always select the best stories, um, yes. the, best, the best stories, and then you'll be, you'll be in good shape. Yeah. That's a really good lesson. I like that lesson too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so somewhere along the way, you discovered, apparently, um, that, uh, that, you, that you had a skill at understanding business and at doing creative things and, that, and whatnot. So um, how many years were you working in product management before you joined Amplitude? You know, that was kind of interesting because at the time, I remember working at a, at a startup called Rich Effects that did e-commerce stuff. And, and at that point, no one was even the product manager. You know, a friend said, hey, we've got to get someone to come in and kind of unravel this or do this thing. And, and it's funny because that 
startup, I think like Stephen Frieder now heads up all of sales at Adobe. All these people went on to do all these particular things. But at that startup at the time, we're just sort of figuring it out. And so I think that in, in a couple of these roles, it was, you know, friends or people, you know, say, I think we've got that kind of complex thing that we need someone to think about. And it wasn't even really full formed at, at doing that. And then when I got involved in ad tech, I, I was involved in an ad tech company that w burned really hot and then it, it wasn't burning hot anymore. So if you can imagine, so you can raise money for anything, especially if you're really well connected and, you, and you're passionate and you have a really, really strong vision. So I worked at, at an ad tech startup uh, called AdKeeper and AdKeeper, the whole idea of AdKeeper was that you were gonna put a little button on ads and that people actually love ads. So they were gonna click on that K button and that would keep the ad in your, oh, wow. in, your, in your keeper. And then if you could keep your ad in your keeper, you could go back and interact with the ads later. So, you know, you'd find things like, uh, and then here's, you know, stroke of genius or madness or whatever. So Scott Kernett, I love Scott, he's great. So Scott says, uh, you know, we're, we, this is a network problem we're going to extend to like the top advertisers in the world. They can use our technology for free for the first year. And so we had Ford, Kmart, you know, like massive, massive, massive brands. And, and if you've done ad tech, you know that actually getting a button on a thing is a lot harder than you think it is. <laughs> like that was the problem. Like this is super complex um, ecosystem to do it. But I, you know, I admire Scott's, you know, guts with all this, but I started an, an ad role there and, um, Charles, who worked there, went on to Jet, and then Jet did Jet's thing. And so all kinds of people who did these things, Barry Engel worked there, there's all kinds of New York people that I knew. But even then, at that point, Sarah Duty does these UX things, she does UX classes, so we were all there. And again, it's like, you, had we fully figured out what product is the way that I think about it right now? Probably not. And even, even I remember when, when that didn't work out and interviewing at you know, Stack Overflow and different things, you do these interviews for product management roles, and it was just so varied at the time. So, so what I would say is, is that it's not like I um, I mean, if you, you were at Media Math, right? Yes. That, maybe, maybe around the same time. Yeah, so maybe yeah I was going to ask you what year that was. Yeah, maybe you had yeah. a vision of what product uh, you know, management was there. But anyway, my point was that this all you know, a couple of these jobs touched on what I think about product management is today, mm -hmm. but they were either like white space filling or, you know, there was, it was more sort of communicate to the engineers focused yeah. or it was any of these things. Makes and it so hard I to answer, I, right? Hard yeah, to answer. I think I got, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going through those things. And that, that kind of brought me up, at, you know, I, I worked at a company here in Santa Barbara called Appfolio, and that was when I was a UX researcher, much more sort of had figured its crap out. And, and that was, you know, we had product roles and it started to get into it. Um, so it's been a journey even for my own figuring out, you know, Zendesk had its own version of what product was. Um, and now at Amplitude, I talked to hundreds of teams and even there, it kind of varies. I think there's common threads between all of these things. But that's been my, my path is not like, um, you know, five verifi verifiable wins out of five successive companies. I'm always jealous. You know, these kids like come out of Stanford or whatever, and they're like, oh, you know, they've got X company on their resume, Y company, Z company, and they're 26 years old. 
and they can basically be hired anywhere. There is a whole other path to get into this, which is, you know, you work at companies, not quite figured out. Um, no one's figured it out. Then you all get older together and you're all wiser and you all start hiring each other. <laughs> and then you all figure out that, that those companies are messed up. And then you go to the next set of companies and you all hire each other again and you're all learning. And, and, and I've been doing this for a while now. So I'm still kind of figuring it out. Yeah, I love that. I was thinking, I can't think of, I, I don't think I've had anyone on the podcast that fits that, uh, that other version of like graduates from school <laughs> has all these top, um, top uh, you know, companies on their resume. Now, this could be a selection bias on my side of who I <laughs> in, invite, but uh, but almost everybody has some form of winding path. Um, one question in there that I that I would um, would help piece together my view of the world is, uh, what year did you move to Santa Barbara? It's about six or seven years ago. Okay. Um, so it's 2019 as we record this. So it yeah, was around 2012. I mean, at, yeah. The, yeah. Real estate collapsed 2008, and there was that startup and that startup and that job and that job mm -hmm. and it was before then, and then it was those <laughs> things. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's been, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I don't, I, I think AdKeeper maybe was around 2010 or something. Like oh, AdKeeper was after the crash. Yeah, that was, was it? I well, that's what I was going to, because you said, because you were like, well, you can raise money for anything. And I was going to be like, unless it's 2008. <laughs> In 2008, you couldn't raise money for anything. Been beforehand then, now, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Anyway, that's how bad my memory is of the uh, 2000s. So. I, yeah, I totally get it. I totally get it. Um, I will not Google it. I was, I, you know, that feeling that when you now we're so clued in that when you have a question, mm, yeah. you look for a screen. Yes. And I just found myself being there. Like it becomes your memory. It does. So like we're outsourcing yes. our memory to Google. And so I found mm -hmm. myself instantly like, I'm going to go and check the computer now and find out when AdKeeper was. So. Yeah. But I'm not. Yeah, we're chatting. Yeah. <laughs> there are podcast hosts who will do that live. <laughs> I thought about it and then I was like, no, nah, I'd get too distracted. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm curious. I think one piece in there that, I, that I'm sure our listeners would also love to hear more about is uh, what, you know, I don't know what you feel comfortable talking about, but um, I'm curious about what flavor of product management you experienced at Zendesk. Uh, and to give you a little more context as to why, um, when I first came across your writing, it was probably about three years ago, um, around when I, you know, started this, my, uh, HR product science. And one of the things that your writing helped me learn was how many, I mean, I already, I'd already started to learn how many different versions of product management exist in the, in the world, <laughs> but, um, but your writing helped me learn that even more because you had enough of an audience that people would respond with questions and you would see how different articles resonated differently and, um, and they weren't necessarily the same questions I had or the same things that, um, that, you know, resonated for me in terms of whether it was a novel and exciting thing or how it applied to the companies I had been at. And it helped me sort of see like, oh, there's all these other practitioners of product management. Oh, it's, um, it's um, and if you've been in New York or in the Bay Area or you've worked at, you know, even two, three or four companies, it's not been until I've really started to interact, probably even at Amplitude with this many teams that you, that it truly kind of, settles in about how wide these roles are. And I always need to catch myself, you know, on Twitter or other things about, I've become much more curious 
I end a lot more statements with a question. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to think about what it means in that particular environment, what the context is, because, you know, I think what happens is that especially in cities or in even groups of friends or groups of coworkers, it has this kind of effect that folds in on itself that you build in these visions of doing it. And so an example would be where I was surprised is I walked in to do a Facebook interview once and at a certain point they're like, well, you know, here's a marker. Could you just start kind of drawing that out? And I, I actually said to them like, um, my preference at this point would be to collaborate with a designer because I'm confident about my thing. And then they looked at me like, huh, you know what? I don't get that. You don't want to just go out and draw this thing. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I could draw it, but these are just my ideas. Like what, what, how would I facil facilitate an environment that we could? And so remember I had been in an environment as a UX researcher where we co-designed everything. Like you wouldn't, you know, even the, even UX wouldn't come in with with the done product. We would work on it together, and so that was like a big. It, it was a big mirror. I had never been in that environment. So e even then, you know, that's an example of how, you know, Facebook has its way, and then everyone who's worked at Facebook goes into a couple set of companies, so they all kind of take a little bit of that going there. And if you're in another environment, you know, great example in Germany, there's a company called Zing. And a, and, a, and a set of companies in Germany with a lot of really interesting product leaders. And I can tell that there's a kind of, uh, there's a German vibe that has sprung from those particular companies where there's been a cross-pollination of people in those companies. So yes, absolutely. This is not just, it's hard to put the, put the thing in the box. Specifically about Zendesk, you know, I, I mean, how would I describe that culture? It, it was a, it was a fact, it was a, um, an output from how the company was founded. You had like a little bit of a Northern European, um, uh, there's two things in, in, in Copenhagen, or I think it started in Copenhagen or someplace, in there. I'm forgetting now, but like one is people are very, very direct with each other. And two, there's a design influence, you know, like there's, a, there's an idea of simplicity and design and doing those things. So it started up there and I think they briefly went to Boston and then they ended up in the Bay Area. And so, now drop that into a Bay Area where for all the, you know, best of the world that's going on theoretically in Silicon Valley, it can be highly political in other ways. You have people who've worked at the same set of companies are just kind of doing the rounds at different places. I met someone the other day who's like, hey, my strategy is to work at one year at the company and get out because they're all messed up. I've been doing this for eight years. I'm vested in eight companies. I don't really need to work, but I just go where the technology is cool and that's what I'm going to deal with. Because the Bay Area is messed up and it's a, it's a meat grinder and everyone is all into themselves, highly individualistic culture, not my game. I'm going to play it for all it's worth. So let that be like the lesson for people that this, there's more layers to this about product culture than, than, you know, Marty Kagan's description of product management. Although I really appreciate that description. There's regional cultures, there's country cultures, there's network effects ranging from how people have moved around jobs. And then there's the cultures of companies, the culture of the engineering counterparts and those things, all those things mash together to make it really fascinating. I mean, that's why I wake up every morning because it's not as simple. If it was just as simple as I need to teach you these things, that would get pretty boring pretty quickly for me. Yeah, me too. I love hearing about all the different versions you've seen and, um, you know, similarly, when I, I love how you mentioned like what you probably learned the most when you started at Amplitude and started talking to this huge array 
And um, I think it was similar for me, you know, like I had, uh, I had found niches that worked for me, but when I started my own consulting and training company and I started doing discovery and trying to talk to as many different people and find out about all the different ways it works, like I just feel like um, my entire worldview has shifted because of the vast range of versions of this that are out there. And now it's to the point where, you know, you <laughs> like, you know, I have to just be like, well, what does that word mean to you? Yeah. What do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah. Shared languages. I mean, a lot of the activities I'm doing lately, what I do is I, I start from a clean slate and let the team design and co-design ment- like shared mental models that help them with shared understanding. So I don't put my names on things. I start the team thinking like, oh, hey, let's, I think we all agree here that having like a one page snapshot of these things, these foos, these X's would be helpful for the team. These bets, let's just call them bets. Okay. You make whatever you want out of the bet, but let's, let's design what this, like, what, what are our needs and what needs would need to be met by looking at this one pager. Now it'd be very easy for me to go in there with a canvas of one pager. I've seen a million canvases for one pagers. There's so many of them that I just reinvent canvases of them just for fun. And, and, which a lot of people are doing, but, but I, I step back and I sort of say, um, what, what are your needs? What needs to be met? Now, what the fascinating thing I find is that even less experienced people are able to get 95% of the way there. They, they intuit and they understand from a theoretical angle, what their needs are, the information they need. And, and when you strip away the words, they're actually pretty good at starting fresh. So they'd have a lot of baggage from the community often or other things about how things should be. Now what they're missing are, they've gotten the theoretical angle, but they're missing that muscle from having gone through this loop over and over and over and over and over and over again. And this is the problem when experienced people try to, you know, relay little bits of wisdom. There's no way that that little bit of wisdom is going to sink in it's encapsulated, you know, 10 years of going through that loop over and over and just saying some, you know, trite, well, you got to learn faster. No one, no one knows what learn faster means. Now, the crazy thing is maybe in college, they studied science or whatever, and they absolutely know what learning faster means. They just haven't applied it into this mess of things that we call product development. So I think that, I mean, it's kind of roundabout way of talking about this, but Shared language is super important. Coming up with your own vocabulary can sometimes be really, really important. And then also, I think not passing too much judgment on people about this idea of like a linear maturity scale. It's really not like that. Like it's very, it's, it's way, it's, it's more of a system of understanding that they're practicing over time. And so it's very easy as a VP or a practitioner or somebody who's done this for a long time to make really snap judgments on where people are at. And, and when you peel away the layers, there's a lot more interesting things. A lot of these enterprises that I talk to, you know, they're, uh, someone said it best the other day. They're like, well, this company, we brought in six digital native executives and nothing has happened. I thought, well, okay. What, what, do you, what do you mean by digital native executive? Like, what does that mean? Well, they worked at this company, you know, they were VP at this company and that thing. And I said, okay, they've got that. Have they ever pressed deploy? Like, have they ever been there in this standup trying to understand all these quirky people? We go, we go to their LinkedIn profile. No, it was McKinsey, it was this, it was this and this. And before they knew it, they were VP and they were doing this thing done. 
okay, so they've worked at those companies, but they don't have the muscle. I need to coach you to coach them because you can't assume that they've got this all figured out because of their resume or because they're a VP. And similarly, you can't, um, don't assume that you know it all. Like there, there's a, they know how to navigate this organization way, 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 way better than you do. So there's skills that you just don't assume that because they haven't pressed deploy that they don't know anything. <laughs> they know tons of things. So I, I have these conversations a lot, which is just about kind of stepping, stepping out of our biases, I guess, to, to try to figure it out. This is, it's a fascinating topic. I think it's also stepping out of our angle on the world. Yep. Like, you know, it's, it's the biases. I mean, it is that, but it's the biases that come from the experiences that any one individual of us have had and what we think is generalizable. We, like most of us, uh, we overgeneralize, right? Like it's a human, yeah. it's a human nature. It's like a, you know, proven thing that we do that, you know, it's just, yeah. that's our brains like to do that. It makes the world easier to process, but um, you know, we forget and, uh, and think that, everyone else's experience is probably somewhat like ours and um huge know. huge issue with this when someone's like you know we just need to execute or it's just a you know just a hiring problem i mean I, i'm definitely biased you can see in my writing if someone comes and says well there you know person x is just a poor performer almost as an intrinsic response to that i i will look at the broader system around that and i'll be like i I'm almost positive that this is not 80% because this person is having trouble doing X. Now I'm biased. So sometimes it is the person, <laughs> like sometimes the person's hasn't been trained up or, you know, it's another person or, you know, there's many reasons why I do it, but I think I've, I've been doing this long enough that, that my gut response is always let's step back, let's map the system out and let's, let's understand what's going on because it, it it's so easy. I guess that's fundamental attribution bias, right? Like you're going to, your problems are system problems and all the people who are making your life miserable. It's them. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> you just summed up like all the things that make me uncomfortable with the world today. Like I just, <laughs> just like I, uh, you know, know so many people um, that assume it, the, every assume that everyone owns their own problems, you know, and, um, and I'm some, I'm like on the other end of the spectrum. Somehow I think I ended up with a, with an unusually diverse set of exposure to different people Mm. in my young adulthood and, and um, I don't want to say childhood, but youth, you know, like through my youth. And so I I just got to a point where like at, at this point I walk around and I see people and I think, you know, what system led them to that place? not like, what did they do? And then I'm just like, oh my God, we're, our systems are so, so bad. (laughs) Well, I think someone reached out to me the other day and they're like, they were talking about some enterprise and they said, you know, it it, like 10, a 10 minute conversation will make your head explode. You know, like there's, there's so much low hanging fruit, you know, apparent low hanging fruit in these, in these large companies but then, you know, I realized, you know, my dad worked for 30 plus years at the same organization or, or more. He came to the United States and a lot of people don't like the International Monetary Fund, but he worked in the International Monetary Fund. And he worked there from when he was probably like 27 to when he was 67, 65. And so you talk to my dad and he'll be like, yeah, that was a bad decade. 
Like things weren't good that decade. Not like last quarter sucked or, you know, whatever. Like you're in, 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 in some ways the IMF is bureaucracy. Like that's exactly what it is. There's no better it, for, for positive or negative. Like it is the world's bureau. It's as bureaucratic as you can get. Although they've gotten a lot better at some things actually. Um, and so that was really helpful looking at that. You know, we are, our, we, we become extremely, maybe for better or worse, I know we become extremely impatient and assuming that, you know, there's this kind of, oh, it's just all messed up. It's never gonna get worked out. This thing is so backwards. But I think I was relating that to these enterprises where, you know, you talk to John Smart or these folks who've done these large scale transformations. He's like, yeah, you know, 24 months, 12, 24 months, things start to really improve. And, you know, it is possible. You need to get by and you do those things. So then the next person, the next, C, you know, CEO of a 17 person startup, that's like, I can't figure this out. You're like, it's been a quarter. You're like, you're 17 people and it's taken you a quarter or two and you can't get, you know, your head out of whatever. And then here's Barclays and it's been 12 to 18 months with these people who really know how to just much healthier approaches to change and have, have shifted and improved the lives of thousands of people, what people working there, the, their customers and stuff. So I think it's all very relative as we look into these, these companies and these systems. Um, and it's important to step back from your own personal experiences with the last company to think about change, especially. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that change management and I mean, I, I kind of don't like that term because <clears throat> I don't really feel like anyone should be thinking they're, they're the one managing the change. Um, but leadership during times of change, <laughs> um, coaching change, things like that, um, I think is an is a, uh, under-discussed area of product management. Um, you know, really we're all, uh, we're all involved in that. And if we work at a company that is doing any level of success, even if it starts as a company that's full of people who are already following, you know, modern best practices for product management. Um, it's not going to stay that way forever because if it grows it's, and it, it's going to start bringing in people who haven't been in that world and those people are going to need help with that change. Yep. Um, and yeah, it's like, and I see this a lot too in these product transformations within companies that the the leadership and advocacy and evangelism that wedges product into that situation and gets going is not necessarily the same leadership and approach that is going to work once product thinking has started to spread across the environment. So you, I, I'm encountering a lot of environments now where, you know, engineering and design are actually expressing a lot of angst about the style of product. But then you ask them like, well, what was going on eight years ago? There was nothing. Well, then what was happening five years ago? Oh, we finally started to get in this VP of product and they were, they, you got these things going and they started the alignment going, they started all that. And how did you feel about it then? Oh, it was great then. Huh. Now what's the, what's the problem now? And, and what actually has happened is they've changed. The other people have stayed the same. They've become much more eager about impact. They've become much more, they don't like the mini CEOs. The mini CEO might've been actually the perfect model for when no, that was the only type of person who could get anything done in that organization initially when there's a lot of tension. And now they're sitting there and saying, who is this person? Who's this grandstander? Like, why are they taking all the credit for things? And, you know, we got to have different types of, I, we don't even need a product manager on our team right now because we're essentially doing it. So that's the kind of evolution that I see that there's these 
it was all good in the moment, but you know, the um, someone said it the other day, you know, all traction involves detraction. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, just the very nature of something working often sets up a new environment where what worked before might not work in this new environment. So I, I don't know. I yeah. find that really interesting. Yeah, I find that really interesting too. And I think um, I was going to ask you to tell me your definition of mini CEO, but I think your follow-up description of how they felt about that person um, did. I usually describe it as relative to the people who are using that particular word because yeah, they, Uh. they, I I started a long thread about it. I've I've, I've learned now to just ask the question and -hmm. then I can just sit back and then learn learn from people what they're doing but this, this mini ceo thing is a really interesting example where you know some people use it in a really positive light um have really positive experiences with a ceo who creates space for what's going to go on and like puts like a, a you know a goal on the horizon and lets the you know get makes makes it possible for the team to work that way and the people who have a bad connotation are you know th- they're thinking that this person has aspirations to run it all you know they're power hungry or they're trying to move up the hierarchy of doing that so it's all a very relative statement and you know it's i'm big into words and usually if a word does not move you forward after a while i just it's not that i hate it or or like it i just don't use it because it's not usable (laughs) yeah no i don't get i don't get a lot out of using those words because it's not helpful yeah, my uh, I think my version of that that would probably be interesting to some people um, is I I, uh, I very much shy away from using the word and M- well the phrase MVP anymore. Mm, that's um, a great example. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it just it's a, it's the same kind of thing where it's just like I've just encountered so much completely opposing sort of feelings and views and understandings around it that it was just like this is, we are spending so much time trying to come to a shared understanding of this word. Let's just pick a new word and make our own definition and drop the baggage. That is, like, it's so funny because I guarantee that probably like 1880s or I, I don't know, maybe maybe like there's a famine in France, but whenever the Belle Epoque was, because I took a class called the Belle Epoque. So I know it existed. I just forget when it was. So the Belle Epoque, there's all these artists and stuff running around France. I guarantee at that point, like there was a word that described like a really cool coffee house where art was happening, like a, you know, joie de, joie de vivre, or like there's some word like that, but about La Belle Epoque that described this kind of intangible spark. And then probably everyone was really excited to use it. And I guarantee like eight years into the La Belle Epoque, people are saying like, don't use that word. Like the coffee houses aren't like that anymore. You know, you, you know, it's just, it's been co-opted now by the bourgeoisie, you know, like you can't, we can't use it. Like it doesn't, we can't use it anymore. We got to have a new word that describes the new way that our coffee houses are happening. And so I think it's just, you know, I wrote this post called the way of ways and like everything is just like this. And once you, once you see it, and this goes back though, to there's so much talking. How are you doing? Like, what are you doing? What are you doing week in, week out? And what I've noticed at the end of the day is a lot of these, this is where technical practices and I have so much admiration for the engineering leaders who kind of create the momentum here, half the anxiety with product managers and all these things is that like the, the, the ability to have like resilient technology that can accommodate some of these changes and learning and, and uh, you know, not shipping every day or every hour, but just at the right cadence to learn that you need to learn without overwhelming that team. So what you see is this wicked cycle is like when you don't, have love on that side to create a resilient architecture and resilient things, 
you find all these silver bullets, which then make it even harder for them to do what they want, which then cause more silver bullets, which means you play more Tetris. And then before you know it, like no amount of reading Marty Kagan posts or, or talking about MVPs or doing whatever will work. Yet we're all sitting around with our thumbs like under our knees because we've, we've created the mess that now is causing nothing to be able to happen. So product is often, you know, unconsciously complicit in the, in the, you know, degradation or entropy of their whole like system that, that, that they have at their companies. And then there's this finger pointing game that goes on. But the reason I'm bringing that up is that there's a lot of talk stemming from just impatience and anxiety about our jobs. But when you're on a team, this is going to work and kicking butt. You just spend a lot of time, less time talking about theoreticals and you talk about what's happening right now. What does the information say? What does the data say? What did that customer say? What did we learn this week? You're that's why we don't see as many blog posts from the companies that are kicking ass. Yes. I love how you, (laughs) I love so many of the things you just said, but the end statement there went exactly to um, a conversation I was having with my team earlier today um, about, uh, you know, the way that knowledge gets spread on the internet and how, you know, a post having 5,000 likes doesn't mean it's actually a deep and useful post. And sometimes the deep and useful post has 10 likes. And, um, and that, uh, you know, if you, if you only learn product management from medium, you might be in trouble. <laughs> it depends on who you follow. <laughs> and yeah. like, um, that's the thing in these companies yeah. that are kick are doing well, I say that there's just fewer chronic issues, all the same acute challenges, all the same difficult conversations. And, and there's just the, the, um, I, I spoke to Ryan Singer yesterday for the podcast that I'm doing, but, you know, he was just describing this kind of it's hard work, but it's not work that's throwing off a lot of noise, you know? So, and I think that that's the difference. Like you need that cycle built up where you're working hard, but not blowing things up all the time. And that's how you kind of know that things, but back to these things about these posts and how you're working, that's the muscle that you build in these that you do over and over again. And my recommendation to people is like, talk to people who are doing that. And they might not have time to talk about it. They don't, have, they don't have the luxury of like a job like mine where I get to talk about it. They don't have time to go to conferences necessarily, but you have to reach out to those people and just take their organization in context and say like, well, what do, can you just talk me through the last four weeks? Don't tell me about your theory of product management because that's kind of easy. I mean, I'm excited about that. We can talk about that later with dessert or after we have shots or something. But like for right now, let's talk, just talk me through your last four weeks what is the day in day out look like and can be helpful yeah and and that uh in some ways is um coming back to how our conversation started where uh you know like there's the there's the the mess of all the things that happened in your 20s but when you share the the gold nugget stories that's what people <laughs> enjoy and learn from <laughs> I think um I think that people learn I mean I think I know I like one of my favorite um books and and podcast guests that I had is Shane Snow's um Dream Teams and he talks a lot about the power of story yeah. and the and uh you know it reminds me um I think you know tying back to what you were saying like to me product management um in many ways I I think there's two two overarching buckets of skill in it one is knowing, learning, figuring out, et cetera, how to 
um, make the best decision for the product. Like what is the best decision and how do we make it? And the right. other is all of the work that's involved in actually getting the company to make that decision. Like the, yeah. the crossing <laughs> that gap between yeah. uh, this is the decision we should make and what well, we made that decision. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think too, it's, you know, for a lot of PMs, I see t- as well as depending on their organization, they're also slipping into the, mo- they're slipping into this role of creating an environment where the best decisions can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I think that that's, so there, there may be even three angles to that. Like the decisions that you, like the theoretically best decision, then the question of like, how do we create an environment where the theoretically best decision can happen? Which, and then there's the, which is in a way, which is your second thing. It's kind of like when you decouple, like the, the organization making that decision or coming to those things, sometimes it's not a, you don't have all the information, right? Like you right. need to partner with other people to do that. But yeah, I think, you know, bringing it back, I think that's one thing with all these quirky experiences that you, you, you know, if you're sitting in a van with like six smelly dudes and driving across the country so many times playing Xbox or something, you, you get, you, you value <laughs> the, the connections between people and how to like, how to be really, how to bring people along for the ride. And then, and then of course there were fist fights and stuff. And like, so that, so you see how bad it can be. And then you see, you see how good it can be. And then, and then you, I don't know if I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm, that's a stretch connection, but you just reminded me as we talked about at the mm-hmm. end of the day, it's about relationship, very close relationships with people. Yeah. And, and that's how I got to that from your statement that, you know, it's not necessarily your decision in a vacuum. Yeah. No, I mean, I totally, I totally agree. And I think to me, that's an assumption I made in my head as you were telling the story about your twenties was that you must be good at relationships because I don't know. Relationships until I get sued. What I learned about that is, is it's relationships <laughs> until this is what, you know, we can, we can end with this. Cause this is what I would say at the end is that yeah. one of the, one thing I've definitely learned in the last year or two is that we're, we're all wired for different things. And so one thing I noticed is that when I'm able to detach, if you have skin in the, if you have skin in the game, if you have like a horse in the race and you're asked to facilitate at the same time and help this environment going, certain people can do that well, certain people not so well. And so my, what I realized is I had strengths and weaknesses, but one weakness for me was, um, I very much believe in this idea of an environment and helping other people do those things to the extent that I'm super passionate about it. Like that, that's really what's important to me. But often for product, you can get stuck between what are your needs? What do you want to see happen? And then your desire to facilitate an environment and help other people do it. And so, you know, one of the interesting twists for me into this particular role is I get to focus full time on just helping other people do it without having skin in the game. And you said, oh, you must be, you must be good with people. And what I noticed is that I'm actually great with people when I'm in a full on help mode. But, but when, but when I'm kind of internal in the belly of the beast in the organization, and I'm just like, everyone, we've like, can't you see it? Can't you, can't you see what's going on? <laughs> you know, so it must, it must be like the therapist who has the dysfunctional family, but that can go out and help other people. Right. So, you know, it, <laughs> yes. it's struggling with that thing. So I, I'd, I, yeah, I'd leave folks with that is you've got to find your, your, your groove with it. And then also as a PM, you have to be very deliberate about when you've got a horse in the race and you believe in things and when you want to try to act as a facilitator, because people see through that in two seconds. Like if you're juggling the hats you're wearing in expertly, mm-hmm. yeah. people will immediately, 
you know, zero in on one, you won't be as effective. So I see a lot of product managers for some reason being like a scrum master and running the retrospectives and stuff, which I'm like, why are you doing that? Well, find someone else. So you mm-hmm. can be a participant. You're a team member. Yeah. Like go to therapy together, get someone else to facilitate that meeting for you. How can you facilitate it while also having skin in the game and also your own needs? Like what environment you can create where you can express your own needs. Yeah. So I'd leave, I'd leave folks thinking about that, about, you know, what are your needs as well as what are your desires for, you know, the, the environment that you're in and helping other people too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, uh, I imagine it goes without saying, but you're probably in the best situation if you can have those all be aligned so that your needs and the environment's needs are, totally. are met the same way. Yeah. I but, think that um, maybe Bon Cardo is getting it too. Is that one of the toughest things to understand is if your need is for a healthy collective environment where people yeah. are all bought in. So, so often people associate that the, the product manager has their idea that their need is to have their idea met. Right. And then, so the problem that I used to have is I would be advocating passionately for continuous improvement, Mm -hmm. but then people would be like, um, is that for you? Like what, 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 what relationship do you have to that idea? And so I know this is kind of meta to think about, but like if, if in your, I, I always tell the product managers, if you have a choice between having a horse in the race and being everyone in your organization being like, that's the person who wants us to do OKRs. Or you, the people think like, oh, John's that person who's really passionate about us coming up with our own experiments about ways of working and then working on that stuff. I actually tell people, if you're going to commit to have a horse in the race, you've got to be ready for that challenge. But consider also that you're, you, you're just one person in this. And if you're, if you're passionate about a healthier organization, be passionate for that. Because once you get pigeonholed for being the MVP person or the OKR person or the, you know, the whatever person, it makes it a lot harder for you to, to enact change. So I know that's kind of meta, meta, or like second things. You, know, yeah. you have your needs, but your needs are for a healthy environment. Be really deliberate about what you advocate for. Mm-hmm. Because you only got so many bullets. Uh, I'm not into the bullets thing because of all the shooting stuff. You only have so many spells to cast. <laughs> so, so, I always play mages too. So, <laughs> yeah. So you only have so many spells to cast, um, <laughs> and you got to be careful. So um, we will end it with that. How uh, how can people find you if they'd like to learn uh, more? Twitter follow is you. Good. You know, I'm an 18 month old. Uh, who doesn't sleep. And so Twitter is a reasonable um, method way to get in touch with me. Uh, you could, you can email me, I guess connecting on LinkedIn would be good. I only, I'd be happy for people to, my email is john cutler at amplitude.com. So if you have questions, you could email me. Um, when, you know, I'm on, when I'm at my desk, which means during the day, you know, I think in terms of my job and you email me there. Twitter is a good way to just sort of, you know, shoot the shit and figure yeah. things out and, Awesome. Uh, DM and me it's on Twitter. So yeah, I'm, I'm a little hard to, I, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I would remember that at John okay. Cuttlefish. At- and I recently released, you know, my, I, I took all the things off of medium, put them on my own blog too, called cuddle.fish. Oh. That's my blog. And it's all, it's bare bones. You'll see it's like 400 posts in one big list, 430 mm-hmm. posts in one big list. Um, so you could read that. Um, I, I'm, I am kind of hitting that roadblock where I'm finding myself not being able to get back to people because I'm kind of overwhelmed because maybe because of all the writing or the Twitter stuff. So I'm trying to be more 
deliberate, maybe in the future I might create like a Slack community. Like I'm just trying to think about ways to to communicate with people and not let them down. So yeah. I, I say Twitter is a good way, but anyway, so this is a challenge. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Well, this is where they can go if they haven't already been following you yep. um, and and uh, and hear more about your thoughts. Awesome. Thank cool. you so much, John. I really appreciate it. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners will as well. And yeah, it was a little bit of a vision okay. quest, yeah. but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. I had the coffee. Kid was up all last night. So yeah, we're going to- Oh, yeah. man. Okay, awesome. Power to all the weirdos and you know, let your freak flag fly and you'll be good. All right, talk to you soon. <laughs> yes. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Hey, Holly here. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode as much as I enjoyed making it. I wanted to share with you that at each of our product science, we run lots of workshops and we'd love to have you join us. We teach the product science method, a step-by-step process for evaluating product opportunities and laying the foundations for high growth product development. We help product leaders and startup founders identify the right products and features to build and develop the support to do so. We do this at private workshops. We also do it at public workshops, both in person and online. If you'd like to learn more, check it out at h2rproductscience.com workshops. The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high-growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.